This is the second in a series of four lectures that we're holding all around the issues of uncertainty. The first lecture we held was uh, um, on uncertainty in, 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 in the context of the energy sector and some of the issues that they're trying to deal with there. This one is trying to provide us a perspective from the environmental social sciences. Um, you'll notice that the camera is going, and these lectures are being recorded and are available on a podcast. And they'll be available not only on um, university, uh, the university site, but also the college podcast as well. There will be no pictures taken of you individually. <laughs> I know that that sort of helps a lot of you, <laughs> maybe. You got all dressed up for nothing, but but we will be recording it, and it will be you'll be able to watch it. But also at the same time, um, the the questions will be recorded, and they'll be able to. Uh, and and this is the reason we're doing this is this is as I said is the second in four, and then the idea is is that we will hold a workshop that'll look at where we want to go with uncertainty. The other two that we want to look at, we've looked at energy, we now look, we'll be look at the social sciences. We're looking at the medical sciences, and what we're trying to do one of those uh, lectures uh, next term. And we're also looking at the media. And we've had some chat. We've tried to get someone on the media, and I'll maybe talk to our friend in the back there a little bit more on that, because we'd like to get someone uh, on those two areas. And it's really to understand how uncertainty is viewed in these, in these areas. So you've listened enough to me. I'm now going to turn this over to our guest speaker tonight, Nick Pigeon. Who, as he, it says up there, he's the director of Understanding Risk Research Group at the School of Psychology in Cardiff, and he's going to t talk to us today, uh, this evening, about uh, uh, uncertainty, risk, and decision making, a view from the environmental social sciences. So, um, my background is unusual in that sense, in that, that I work with um, uh, climate scientists, um, uh, geographers, uh, environmental sociology as well, as well as environmental psychology. So, the talk kind of comes from that. Um, background. And in fact, actually, if you think about environmental risk and risk itself, it is a very interdisciplinary field. You can't, uh, I think the, 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 the main journal, Risk Analysis, which I publish in, um, is actually a mathematics journal. It's categorized as mathematics. But in fact, the social science that's in there comes from a number of disciplines. Um, so, I, I, I want to really do three things. I'll talk about risk and uncertainty, some basic concepts, then I'll say a little bit about the psychology of environmental risk, and then get on to sort of the case study of risk communication and climate change. Um, and some kind of proposals that, that a colleague from uh, the, the US and myself have made in the last year for how we might uh, approach this in, in the climate change arena. But actually, it's a generic argument that I want to make. Um, actually, in fact, having been studying risk for well, 30, 40, 30 years now, myself, um, it, risk kind of ebbs and flows with, with what's going on at the time. Um, and for a, for a period, actually, you would have said it, it was not a very high-priority topic either for research funders or for policymakers. There was interest in risk um, as a concept and in risk management. Um, but, and it, but it's often events that, that for, certainly force policymakers to start thinking again about how they're handling risk. So... Um, the three or four good examples that have, in the last year, really, have sort of come together um, and have started quite a lot of conversations about risk at, at um, central policy level, both in, in the UK, um, Europe and elsewhere. Obviously, there's climate change and there's the question of how we move to a more risk-based um, understanding of that. Um, the AS cloud was a, a, a big shock 
um, both to the aviation industry and to the regulators. In fact, they had a zero-risk um, standard, which is why they had to ground all the air- aircraft initially, and they then had to unravel and work out what, what the risk standard ought to be um, in order to allow some safe flights um, uh, uh, as well as allow precaution in, in the face of the danger that was there. And, of course, Fukushima um, has, was, be, was in the news almost a year ago now um, for, a, for a long period of time, and, and has brought back that debate about, it's been there a long time, about um, doses of radiation um, and, and about the, um, the safety of nuclear power. And then also there are risk issues also around the move to a decarbonised society in relation to um, uh, renewable energy. In, in mid-Wales, actually, we have a huge, I don't know if people have noticed this, but in, in the press, maybe, maybe not, um, but certainly in Wales, there's acute awareness that there's a very large environmental controversy going on currently around the, the potential placement of a large number of um, wind turbines in, in, in certain rural areas. And that's also invo- involved a battle around the upgrading of the electri- electricity grid there as well. So, and, and those things are happening in, in England as well as Wales. Um, so there's very, some very interesting times for risk researchers, I think that would be fair to say. Um, Let's talk about what risk is. Um, uh, there are a number, of, funnily enough, there isn't one definition of risk. Actually, I, uh, I did work for the Royal Society there, Risk Report, in 1992, wrote the chapter on risk perception um, uh, all that long ago, and um, I actually got excommunicated by the Society for about three years um, for daring to suggest there was more than one definition of risk. Um, and they didn't like a table I'd put in, which had come from the peer-reviewed literature, showing that actually in the, when you go out there and look at the people who work with risk, there are multiple definitions. Being the society, they wanted one definition. That was the point of having the report, is to come up with the single definition of risk. And, of course, there isn't. So some people think of risk as a likelihood of harm. So um, Others, it's more, in the technical definition, would be much more some weighting of consequence and likelihood. So something could be very, very unlikely, but if the consequence is high... Um, let's say, a meteorite strike on the, on, on, on the Earth, which would then lead to massive loss of life. Um, that would be seen as risky. Um, the other thing, when you look at it, um, is that... It, and I think that was clear even when, way back when we did that work for the Royal Society, the, the group of us um, up at London and the LSE, was that um, there were, it, at the regulatory level, it was quite complex that risk regulation and management... Um, develops in different ways in different fields. So radiation risk is, is related to dose, as is chemical risk. Building risk is completely different. If you go to the, talk to the civil engineers, I mean, you wouldn't even think there's a risk that this building will, will fall on us at this point in time. And, and probably there isn't, but there are risk calculations in there. It's done very much on a, um, uh, um, on a load versus um, uh, strength basis and they would add an, a, an additional amount, to, which is the kind of the safety margin. So it's, that's dealt via codes of practice. Um, and, and aviation is different again, in a sense. that there's all, there's, It's not that there's a zero-risk policy in aviation, but that some things are seen as um, ex- extremely um, uh, 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 problematic to have, and therefore you would, you would regulate very strongly against certain um, ev- events occurring. In aviation, the goal is no accidents. That, that, that's clearly not um, uh, completely possible, but that is the goal in aviation. Um, the traditional approach to risk assessment was a very linear one. Um, uh, I won't go into this in great detail, and, and the reason why I just show that is that I think thinking has changed, that often you would have... And if you identify the risk, you do your science, which is the middle box. You'd have some judgment involved there, which would be values um, associated with um, what is a tolerable or acceptable risk. And then you'd develop policy optim- 
options. And then you might go out and tell the people that, that are being regulated or that might be affected by your decisions. So you'd kind of have communication right, right at that end. It's not even there in that um, uh, 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 diagram. Um, things have changed. I'll get on to that. Um, we also know as well, we've known this for a long time, um, but Andy Sterling at Sussex at, at Sprue has um, written quite extensively about this, that, that there is really, uh, risk is a, Risk itself is a restricted concept, and it's, it's to do with our understanding of knowledge and how much knowledge we've got. That, that if you think about the uh, two dimensions of risk, which are um, outcomes, that's the consequence, and then the likelihood, which is the, how likely it is it will um, occur, then for either of those two dimensions, you can have more or less information. Um, and when, you, when you've got high information about what the outcomes will be, plane crashes might kill... 100 people, and you know exactly what the effect of an ash cloud is on an engine, then you're in the domain of risk. So you can, you can use methods of risk assessment, standard risk methodologies. But as, as knowledge um, uh, uh, decreases on either of these dimensions, you get into different uh, domains. So Andy talks about when, when your uncertainties um, or your likelihoods are not well known, then you're decision-making under uncertainty. Um, when your consequences are unknown, so we don't really know the consequences, what the co real con social consequences of um, uh, rapid climate change might be, then you're under ambiguity, as, as um, uh, Andy calls it. And then something that uh, 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 policymakers don't like this phrase, but it, it sums it up nicely, that when both are uncertain, or you've got lack of knowledge about both, then you're decision-making under ignorance. And... Um, and, and, and in a sense, decision-making under ignorance is um, not to be avoided. It's something that you have to deal with, that if you have deep forms of uncertainty and ignorance, then as, as the graph shows, you, you have to move away from traditional risk assessment and use different um, tools and methods. So you're actually um, using different methods of governance, surveillance, um, extra research and diversity and flexibility. Um, and adaptability as well, rather than traditional risk assessment methods. And that's a difficult uh, message for the policymakers because they, like they like numbers and they like the things that traditional risk assessment will deliver them. So uncertainty and lack of knowledge is, is a problem. Um, now, a number of us have been arguing over the years that it shouldn't be a problem, it's difficult to deal with, it's just that you need different methods. Um, so, yes, yeah, so, yeah. Um, and there's something in, the, the nice way to put it, David Collingridge, who's dead now, was a sociologist of science, um, uh, put this, and he first talked about the, the uh, decision-making under ignorance in, in his book, The Social Control of Technology, um, put something which is now known in, in the field as the Collingridge Policy Dilemma, that what he said was, well, very early on, if you're thinking about a major science policy issue, very early on, you've, you may have ignorance, and so the uncertainties are too wide, and then you don't actually know which, which decision to take. So you could easily take a wrong decision quite early on. Later on, when you've resolved some of the uncertainties, um, the policy dilemma is, oft, is often that you've got locked into a trajectory. And the work from science and technology studies will show that once you start on a, a major policy project, like building nuclear power stations, for example here, um, uh, you, you, after a certain period of time, it's very difficult back to row back from the, that, that, that decision to go ahead. I mean, one can reflect upon the current decisions to move ahead with nuclear power in this country in, in those terms. And he actually used the, um, the history of the UK nuclear industry as a good example of a, 
how the dilemma played out and led to a kind of catastrophic set of certainly economic failures that um, the, the, in the move from the Magnox reactor type to the advanced Gatz reactor type, um, the engineers had used quite a small test rig or test reactor up at um, Sellafield um, to, to prove the concept. But when they went to build at scale, the, the first one at Dungeness was about 10 years and, and hugely over budget. And economically, the advanced gas reactor fleet were an absolute disaster. I don't think there's any doubt about that. And, and um, Connie Ridge argues it was about ignorance. And he argues also that unit scale was a particular issue. If you're building big things under ignorance, then you've got, there's much bigger risk that, that, that things are going to go wrong. How do you deal with that? Well, um, from his work and others, um, again in the policy domain, um, you, you can do the sorts of things that Andy Sterling shows on his graph. You can use different methods to try and scope out what the uncertainty is about, um, where your areas of ig- real ignorance are and where, where they matter, and then, then that might lead you to do more research. So you're, you're trying to scope out where you do research. Um, place a premium on flexibility and reversibility. So dis- and economists wouldn't give you a, a pound for this, but um, under ignorance, a decision that allows you to change as you go on, so this is an ad- adaptability idea, has more value to you than one that locks you into a certain uh, single course, which, which, if it's wrong, um, potentially um, uh, leaves you with high economic and other damage. So decisions which are flexible and reversible. Build system resilience. There's an interesting book that uh, Aaron Bildavsky wrote in the late 80s uh, where he talks about this whole and uh, searching for safety, where he talks about the whole anticipatory versus resilient approaches to risk management. So these are, are not... Um, new ideas. And then widening stakeholder participation, which opens up the policy framing. So you're trying to say, um, if you've got ignorance, are there people out there who you don't have around the table currently who might be able to, um, uh, to actually um, uh, reduce some of the ignorance because they have knowledge that you don't. And that's part of the um, motivation for the, the, the wider public and stakeholder participation in, in science and technology policy that we have. Okay. Um, I want to say a bit about the psychology of risk because it relates to... So it looks a little like um, I'm moving aside, but it relates to what I'll get on to, which is kind of communication. Um, uh, it's often... It was, uh, the nuclear industry is a good example of this. It's often argued people sort of misperceive risks or some way think irrationally. So when the first um, objections to nuclear energy appeared in the 60s and 70s, um, the engineers and others attempted to say, well... No, the risk was very low. It was all very safe. And, and interestingly, that didn't persuade anybody. That still, there was more opposition. Um, and psychological research has shown a number of really interesting things. And this is just a little test, and so we'll try with everybody here. Um, are there any China specialists, by the way, in the room? I never know in Oxford. You might find one somewhere. Good, OK. Um, so um, just if I say, what is more likely next year um, are, will there be more road deaths in China or will there be more deaths um, through homicide? Okay, just think about that. And we'll just take a little vote. Uh, will there be more road deaths in the next year in China or more homicides in China? Okay, and let's take a vote. Who's, who goes for the road deaths? Okay, that's... Yeah, all right. Now, who goes for the homicides? Good, okay. So the road deaths win. And the, and they don't know. Yeah, great. Yeah, you're, you're, you're de- de- not deciding to be flexible under ignorance. In fact, actually, the road deaths, that's absolutely correct. But I bet no, nobody really knows those statistics. And if you ask people for the actual statistic, it's wrong. Um, so you won't get it right. 
Um, you can do this with, I mean, you're a relatively specialised audience in that you come from a university environment. You can do this with a, a general public um, uh, sample and you will get a very similar result. And um, the, the argument is people are using various heuristics to work out. And I don't know, could anybody suggest why you decided road deaths were the, were the one? Oh, so you went for the homicides because not many cars. Yeah, China's developing fast, actually. I've actually been to China. You've been there. And you... I haven't kind of watched, and I, I, I'm surprised it's that long. Right, <laughs> good, all right. Okay. Do you um, um, now, I, I'm, I, let's, can somebody, statistician, work it out? It's about 3,000 a year. I think that's right in the UK, which would be, um, let's work that out. It's, it's 10 a day, that's the number. It's about 10 a day, yeah. 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 Um, I think it's higher in China, that's, that, that's right. Um, but what you've, what you've all done is, is employed a kind of rough and ready heuristic. You didn't think about it a lot, didn't need to go for a, to a book. And you've quite rapidly come to a relative risk judgment, which is pretty accurate. So um, that just demonstrates that it wasn't necessarily, and you can do this with nuclear power um, uh, and other things, it wasn't necessarily sort of ignorance of a feel for what the, the numbers were on the deaths that, that were driving concerns. And what you find, long-standing research shows that people were distinguishing risks on other dimensions, and that's why risks were unacceptable or acceptable, the actual statistics not, notwithstanding. So whether a risk is voluntary or involuntary, whether it's inequitably um, uh, 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 imposed on people, um, unfamiliar or not, man-made versus or, um, uh, anthropogenic versus natural is very important, particularly in a case like radon, um, danger to children or particularly dread outcomes like cancer. And there's a very famous um, piece of w work that was done by colleagues of mine in the US. I won't say too much about this, but they... Um, these are a whole host of technologies. Um, they um, ask people, were they voluntary or not? Were they, how much control did you have on, over them? How much did you worry about them? Which is the dread risk, risk factor. And they factored it, and the, all the um, questions factored into two main dimensions. One was dread risk, one was... So it's kind of how um, nervous or um, uh, uh, how, um, uh, yeah, how uncomfortable does the risk make you feel from here through to there... So things over on the right are more uncomfortable, generate more uncomfortable feelings. Um, and then um, this is an unknown risk. How, um, uh, how unknown is the risk to you personally or to science? And what was pointed out was things, some things down here, like swimming pools, um, bicycling, uh, motorcycles, do kill uh, quite a few people, but we don't worry about them because they're seen as familiar and, and they, they don't have this kind of dread, lack of control factor. But stuff up here... Uh, nuclear reactor accidents, radioactive waste was the prototypical one at the time. DNA is up there, actually, interestingly, before anybody really thought that was an issue. Um, make people feel uncomfortable and are seen as unknown. So that, that's some of the psychological work that's been done. Um, affect's very important. Um, the, that dread dimension has been theorised in, um, in more complex terms since, um, and, and it's now talked about as an affective um, response. It's, it's not the case that uh, an emotional response to a risk issue is necessarily an irrational thing. Um, in fact, actually, if you think about it, people who don't have effective reactions 
are not good decision makers. There's lots of evidence on that, people, particularly people who've had um, brain damage um, uh, uh, accidentally um, and, and lose some of their emotional um, uh, 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 cog cognition um, are actually very poor at doing, make, doing decisions. So you need the effective response to um, generate rational decision making and it's quite a powerful driver of perceptions of risk. Um, so if you think about the, the Fukushima accident and the media images, talking about the media, how the media report these things, particularly in the photographs, then the media knows the sorts of things that will um, kind of generate that effective response. And that's one of the reasons why, obviously, um, risk perceptions are shaped partly by media reporting. The other thing that came out of the psychology research is the importance of trust and We've, we found with many, many studies that distrust in risk regulation and management um, leads to higher perception of risk and lower acceptability of a risk question. So if, and, and actually, there's a logic to that, that if you don't trust the people who are supposed to be managing the risk, um, and again, the, the engineers in charge of nuclear plants or chemical plants and the policymakers up in Whitehall are supposed to be regulating these things don't really like this message, but the evidence is absolutely clear um, that, that, that distrust is something that, that kind of um, uh, is a cue for people. It's a bit like the heuristic for judging risk. It's a heuristic to tell people that, well, let's be a little cautious about um, this. And very good sociology work by Brian Wynne and others has been done, um, trying to unpack what this, this trust thing means in sociological terms. Um, obviously, um, Ulrich Beck talks about the risk society, that we've moved into a risk era, era where, we, where, where, where at one level we have to trust experts all the time, but at another level that leaves us vulnerable. And that's why we're all, always never fully prepared to trust um, experts in relation to environmental risks. Um, it's very easy to lose and hard to gain, um, and it involves, um, uh, it impacts communication as well. So if we distrust the messenger, um, we're not going to trust the message that's coming. So, so one of the um, outcomes of a number of policy inquiries into risk controversies is that there has to be um, very high levels of openness and transparency, both about risk and uncertainty. Um, always the, the policy response is, uh, if you get a risk issue, is to let's stay quiet about it until we get some more information. But that is not the uh, received wisdom. And there have been some very good examples of where that's gone wrong and good examples of where being open um, has, has actually helped with, with risk communication. Um, Theoretical model of stress. I won't go into that. Um, risk communication. So we, we've also moved in the last, again, thinking about from the Royal Society report through to now, the last uh, 20 years or so, we've moved away from what was traditionally called the deficit model of science communication, the idea that if only we gave people more scientific knowledge, they would become more kind of rational about risks. Um, but we know now that more knowledge doesn't automatically change behaviour, um, or attitudes. In fact, actually what happens is, if, if, as you get more knowledge about a science topic, if it's a controversial science topic, you get more polarisation. So some people will become very against something and others will become quite strongly for it, depending upon uh, other factors, other ide uh, potent, often ideological factors. So knowledge has some quite subtle effects upon um, uh, people. Um, or more knowledge does. Um, the House of Lords made this um, argument um, uh, following the, actually the BSE inquiry um, into mad cow disease that um, there was a need to kind of change the whole terms of reference in relation to public understanding of science and that there had to be a two-way dialogue. And so the whole risk communication domain has followed that in a way, has been part of that 
um, evolution towards a much more dialogic approach. And I'll explain why that's important as we go on. So in 2002, the Cabinet Office then, which is why I showed the early linear model, um, uh, uh, showed this, which was a much more fluid model where you have actually communi risk communication, which didn't appear previously, is there at, at every stage of the risk um, uh, of the risk um, identification, assessment ma and management and evaluation process. And that's why risk communication has become a very important part of risk-taking policy. Um, uh, what do we know so far? I'll go through this very briefly. Um, uh, in terms of risk communication, it's important. Actually, people do understand risk numbers, but you have to contextualise them properly. Uh, and the other thing is that... Um, the key thing from risk communication research is that um, it's near to useless if you don't actually tell people what they can do to protect themselves. Um, and that's, so you can't just scare people and say, you know, there's a chemical spill somewhere uh, down in South Oxford or whatever. Um, and that's completely useless. And let, so you've got to tell people whether they need to evacuate or stay indoors or whatever um, um, uh, uh, behaviour is required. Um, you actually also need to understand and address people's own concerns and mental models. And I'll show that with Radon in a minute. Um, there's a great danger that scientists and um, medical specialists think they know what, how people are looking at the problem and then will design a communication from their own frame of reference and it misses the target. Um, which is why, I'll, and I'll come on to this, that you, you, that you need a strategic listening approach to risk communication, both research and practice now. Um, target knowledge gas, gaps, and there are various framing things. Um, so just coming back to the, um, some of the ways that uh, risk has been communicated, this isn't necessarily the best way, but there are a number of kind of scales that, that try to put into context. The bottom one here, the, what, this is one they were originally interested in, is living 150 years with, within 20 miles of a nuclear power plant is equivalent to smoking 1.4 cigarettes a day. So one, one looks at the risk. I, I mean, some of these analyses actually do not take into account the fact there are uncertainties. And the, the risks, some of these exist in, the dif in different areas of Andy Sterling's space, actually. So that's one reason why they're not um, comparable. Another reason is you're, you're mixing up risks that have um, different psychological characteristics. So um, travelling 10 miles by bicycle in Oxford is a voluntary activity, which you get great health benefit from, aside from the risk question. So to say it's equivalent to having a nuclear power plant next to you can be quite insulting. So um, one of the arguments about these, these scales is they have to be used very, very carefully because the audience can respond very badly um, to that. Um, this is a slightly better way. One of, one of the things, um, one of the mistakes that risk communicators often make is um, they will say, um, oh, well, um, this particular medical procedure will double your risk of X. Because if you don't know the baseline, um, that is a meaningless number. So there have been a number of attempts to sort of um, conce con um, conceptualise the baseline frequency against which the risk... And that's, that actually is a very a, a good practice um, way of um, helping out with communicating risk. So numbers are not entirely useless in, in all of this, but you have to go and look at the literature and the research evidence to work out how and in what way to present numbers. Um, uh, talking about people's frame of reference, I'll just show this radon. We had a work on uh, a research project for the Health Protection Agency or Department of Health a few years ago on radon. Some of you will know that there are estimated UK deaths. Uh, this, is a, this is a radioactive, odourless, colourless gas, which you find in certain geological areas. I think you get it. These would be part 
that's the Mendip Hills, isn't it? So actually north of Oxford there will be some radon areas. I think that's the limestone formations, those of you who are geographers here. Um, it's often associated with granite as well, but limestone also. And uh, we know that, that the exposed populations, there's some resistance to protection. I mean, this is quite a serious... This is a third of the road deaths. And if you think about the effort we take in, in, in road, uh, ca- uh, road safety protection, it's of that kind of order. Um, but it's much, much more of an invisible hazard. Um, and we, we did some interviews with people who lived in these radon areas, and I'll just give you these three examples. Um, and this is a good example of trying to get at the way people are thinking about the problem before you design the communication. So um, somebody said, well, somebody else next door, um, they had a radon test, and uh, that was fine, so my house is okay. That's not tr- that's, that's, that is a misunderstanding, because um, just because one house... Uh, is okay does not mean another house is okay. Houses are different. So um, the the risk specialists say, no, the only way to be certain is to have a test in your house. Um, Some people think it's too expensive, um, which is only rarely true. And then I like this one, yes. And this is a very sensible way of thinking about radon risk. If you're 73, you don't really worry about cancer in 20 years' time. Um, And that shows there are different um, populations, different publics out there for communication of the message. So um, what we ended up with on this project was, having done all the qualitative work with people, was um, first, you only really need to communicate knowledge which is useful for people, for decision-making, and I'll come back to that, because you, can cu- you end up communicating too much and um, uh, overwhelming people. So it's very important to target the, the most important knowledge. And, and what would be argued is you want to reinforce correct knowledge, so you say red on is dangerous. People kind of knew that, knew that in these areas. They'd heard of it. But then correct any misinterpretations. So, for example, remediation is generally not expensive in an average house. And filling gaps in knowledge, which this point about exposure is very dependent upon the individual house. So that's a way of using empirical work to work out what your audience thinks initially, rather than just going in and saying, Radon is a risk, you must, um, you must dig up your house or um, uh, start putting um, holes in the walls to ventilate it, and, and the risk is a certain number of millisieverts. Much, mu- much more important to try and understand the um, frame of reference of the audience. Um, the public's not a single entity, that's what we know. Designing risk communication is dialogue and use trusted sources. And then the final thing, which is not done very often and should be, and it often is quite easy and not always ex- particularly expensive, to, is to evaluate the impacts of communications time and time again. Um, governments, um, uh, other policymakers um, uh, will send out a communication because they think it's important, and they won't then test whether the people they aimed it at either saw it, or if they saw it, what they took away from it. And that's absolutely critical. I mean, my colleague, um, Brooke Fishoff in the States, has this um, uh, wonderful phrase, you should never... Um, never release an untested risk communication um, in the same way as you should never um, release an an untested medicine. You have to think about it that way because um, it could have serious unintended consequences. Um, Oh, and consider competing messages. Um, You're always in trouble. And and that's one of the dilemmas of risk communication often, that there are are many different messages um, out there. Okay. So to kind of sort of wrap some of this together, I just wanted to talk about climate change for about uh, 10 or 15 minutes. And um, uh, Roger, I know, is is kind of an expert, and there's a lot of expertise here in in Cambridge around around climate change. I've actually been involved as an Economic and Social Research Council um, fellow over the last three years. 
And, and I suppose the presenting um, hypothesis to the Economic and Social Research Council wa was that, um, that we'd had the IPCC fourth report, we'd had the Stern report, therefore that should be having some impact on public understanding. So I, I propose to look into how public understanding would evolve um, over the period 2008 through to about now. And of course what happened was there was, as you see in the, in the middle here, there was a major event uh, for the uh, UK climate science, which was the, the theft of the, U the emails, which I meant to write at the start from my colleagues, um, uh, the server at University of Sanglia, a very large um, press uh, reporting, which was reported in certain parts of the press, both here and in North America and elsewhere internationally, um, as that the climate scientists had really there was a fraud going on here and they were um, um, either manipulating their results or not. Now, as it has turned out, closer inspection um, as well as three quite um, uh, major inquiries have um, sort of said, well, no, there wasn't any fraud or any, in any sense any fraud associated with the climate science here. Um, uh, and you can go and kind of look at those and, and make your own um, uh, judgment about that. But um, it was, it's kind of interesting because um, having set off on this research project to um, think about public understanding of climate change risk, there was this major what we could call social amplification event um, in, in the media event in the middle. So I want to say a little about... Um, why risk is important to all of this and, and why we need to think in risk. Risk has a, ha, is a danger, but we need to think in risk terms uh, or uncertainty terms. Um, since 1992, the objective of policy has been to avoid dangerous anthropogenic interference, but at that time it was not defined. Um, partly, um, Roger may correct me, but my understanding is because they realised if they defined what dangerous climate change was, they wouldn't have got agreement at the, at the international negotiating table. So you use, in policy, you use loose language on purpose. You use ambiguity to get an agreement on the, on the assumption that later on you're going to get people um, uh, to, to agree. Now, subsequently, they, we, there has been an agreement and there is a kind of agreed um, definition of dangerous climate change. It is 2 degrees C uh, above, um, uh, uh, above pre-industrial levels, is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, but um, the, the other interesting thing about the, the dangerous climate change thing is you can't fully s solve or specify what dangerous climate change is through science alone. Um, we, this has been known in the risk field for, since the year dot that, uh, that acceptable risk involves risk and uncertainty as measured by science, but it's also values about so how do we actually judge the severity of con the consequences, why, which ones are we prepared to run or not and the acceptability of options as well, some of which will cost, cost money or it'll be about change in behaviour. Um, so uh, actually, I think that's, that's from the Stern report, and 2 degrees C is the limit of dangerous climate change. But the argument is, for some um, populations, um, for example, in terms of uh, extreme weather events or rising sea level, if you, if you live on a very low-lying island in... Um, uh, in the Pacific that's under threat from sea level, very small sea level change, then 2 degrees C is, is above the acceptable limit. Um, for, uh, for other areas, um, 2 degrees C may be just about manageable. I mean, the argument is it's certainly in the developed countries we will be able to adapt by spending a lot of money um, in a way that uh, many of the developing nations will not be able to. So there's a big debate, obviously, about what is and is not acceptable risk. Um, but... Uh, the, um, the, the agreed definition is kind of 2 degrees C. The pessimistic projections suggest 
that we're going out at least to 4 degrees C over the next um, 80 years or so. And there's a much more serious set of consequences attached to that. And I don't want to go into the climate science per se. Um, yeah, uh, the interesting thing about... I'll, actually, I'll just, I'll just go to the, back to the previous one. Uh, previous to this research project, I've obviously done work on how the public had viewed climate change risk. And what the interesting thing about it is, is something called psychological distancing, that um, people understood it was happening, um, understood there was some contestation about the science, but very much view it, view it as a distant problem. So um, it would affect other people, other times, other generations. So in a sense, there's no motivation to do anything. And it's one of the arguments why... Um, or one of the explanations why people tend not to, um, to make radical changes in their behaviour in relation to climate change. And this is where risk comes in, because that's, that's a disempowering set of discourses. It's clear that that is. Um, on the other hand, we insure against um, burglary in our home or fire in our home, and yet that generally happens to other people in other places and other times. But uh, for risks like that, we actually do think in risk terms and we do take out insurance. And so there is an argument that one can, un under, in, not in a sense underplay, but one can um, uh, address the, some of the fatalism that comes from the distancing of climate change that many people have by, by literally talking in risk terms. So risk is useful for us here, I think. Um, in a number of ways. Shifting of public opinion, this is the interesting thing, and same in the UK as the US, and this is, this is before the climate change emails, this is the interesting thing, that between about 2006 and two, uh, two late, early, mid-2010, um, um, actually, sorry, no, this does include the, the emails, um, but, but the trend was already on the way down before this point here. So... Um, even though the science was getting more certain, people were getting more uncertain about um, the scientist's view of risk and, and also concern and belief in anthropogenic climate change was going down. And that's a puzzle. Now, one of the reasons for this has been actually quite a, um, quite a complicated, not exactly a strategy, but um, sociological research has shown that there, there has been a, a very concerted attempt to deny climate change amongst um, a, a number of um, uh, particularly... Um, uh, think tanks in, in certain think tanks in the US, some in the UK as well. And, and uh, the main tactic has been to inject uncertainty into the debate. So you've got kind of a dilemma here. Oh, and there are, yes, there are even... I'll go down. This stopped. Oops. That's strange. That's taking me to the books. There are even books being written for children to um, kind of suggest that what's being ta taught in geography classes in America is incorrect about climate change. So this, this is quite an, kind of an organised um, uh, uh, um, uh, campaign that's gone on there. Now, the, the problem with this is that, of course, despite the fact that we know a number of things pretty well for certain, that, that, that our emissions are producing climate change, that they are, they are produced by our activities in, in using energy... Um, and that they are leading to increased concentrations in the atmosphere, and that is very likely to have some very negative effects in terms of global warming. Nevertheless, the, the climate science itself is fraught with loads of uncertainties, so there's still lots of interesting things for climate scientists to be working on, um, even though there is this core... And one of the key uncertainties is how much fossil fuels will we burn? Will we suddenly tomorrow go down a much more... Um, green pathway in terms of uh, lifestyle and use of energy, 
or will we continue business as usual? That's a huge social uncertainty attached to what, 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 what will be the outcome in relation to um, uh, climate change. So, um, oh, and I'll just show that. That's, that's an interesting effect of the campaign, in particularly in America, and this is from 1997 through to 2008. It wasn't the case before 1997, but there now is a huge political split amongst Republicans and Democrats in the US. You can partly see it in the UK as well, but it's not as extreme. Um, so your views about climate change are almost entirely governed you can, uh, uh, by your voting preference. And that's a very difficult situation to overcome because obviously um, what it then means is um, uh, those who um, are on the left um, will believe um, uh, what the climate science is saying and be much more um, uh, uh, receptive to the science, um, whereas you, if you come from a more right-wing um, position, you're more sceptical of what the climate scientists are saying. So there's a, there's a communication question in there. Um, and so one could be speaking to an audience like this, and one half of the room are taking one message away as a climate scientist, and the other half of the room are taking a completely different message away. And you don't know that is actually happening. But, um, so uh, there's a very difficult situation here around climate change that in this battle over climate interpretations, interpretations, the scientists are trying to struggle to communicate, whereas climate sceptics, as, as they, they are sometimes labelled, are seeking to emphasise uncertainty. So the scientists are now in a, a big dilemma. Um, my argument is we need to actually just come out of the cupboard and say, this is about risk. Um, and actually, just because there is uncertainty, that does not paralyse us from action. And that, that, that reframing then focuses, uh, focuses on us on the sorts of decisions we need to do to deal with climate change. Okay, so we mustn't be afraid of uncertainty. The, I'll show this briefly because this relates back to the psychology of um, uh, risk communication. That IPCC tried actually to in, have tried in their last few reports, uh, the last one certainly, um, to um, to actually incorporate uncertainty in the narrative. So they define at the start that um, very unlikely is less than ten percent chance. Um, etc. So they, and then as the reports go on, you will see this evidence <coughs> is likely and that, that, that point we're, we're very certain about, virtually certain about, or very likely. So they use these key terms throughout. Um, the problem is they didn't do the communication evaluation, which I mentioned. And I'll show you. There's a very interesting little paper in Psychological Science. People do this work. Um, there's a long history of work on verbal quantifiers of probability as those were and what people t what people how people interpret them and you'll see here very unlikely and this is what people think very unlikely means when you ask them and that's the 10 percent and remember very unlikely should be less than 10 percent chance but people think it's anything between 10 percent that's the well, that's the uh, media, two median court, uh, middle quartiles anyway um, between 10 and 50 percent so immediately um, and even if you define it for people, they still think it's between 10. It gets slightly better, um, just below 10 and between 50%. Um, you, there's, been, there's a problem in communicating that um, information. So uh, uh, the IPCC hasn't, hasn't always done the best it could in terms of communicating risk. So what's the challenge here? Well, actually, there's a big challenge in trying to bring the research we know from psychology, decision sciences, risk communication, into contact with the climate science. And my argument, and, and with um, uh, Brooke Fischoff from Carnegie Mellon University in a paper we wrote um, about a year ago now, 
uh, is that that has not happened yet and that there's a, there's a pressing need in the climate science um, or in the climate policy domain to, to bring the evidence we've got uh, into contact with, with those in the climate science community who are attempting to communicate and get across uncertainty. So the challenge is to support uh, engagement with and decisions about the issues, support various policy decisions at a variety of time horizons, um, remaining faithful to what people know, don't know, and need to know. This point about the radon, that you've got to kind of think through what, what the target of um, the, the scientific knowledge is. Um, UK Climate Impacts Programme, uh, very interesting. Um, some of you will know this. This was developed here primarily at Oxford, um, and uh, it really was the, it was a world first, an attempt to say at a, at a, a quite a fine-grained level what the probability of certain consequences will be um, uh, for the UK um, over a, actually three, three time frames. I think it's 20, out to 2020, 2050, and then this is showing 2080. And the website there gives you a whole host of potential parameters you can use. So this is, and the way they do this, they'll give you three um, scenarios. And the change in mean daily maximum temperature in the summer for a medium emissions scenario. So there's a lot of extra uncertainty built into this. Um, and it, what, what we've got here is that this is um, uh, central England, central and southern England, and that's about, I think that's two degrees rise. So it's, it's, it, there's 10% probability level. Um, so it's very unlikely to be less than that two degree rise. Um, the central probability estimate is, um, uh, I think that's somewhere like five degrees. Um, and the high is somewhere like eight degrees. A 90% probability level, very unlikely to be greater than. So you're giving people a range, basically, of the uncertainty. Um, this, is for, this is not global mean change. Um, it's the mean daily maximum temperature in the summer. <coughs> okay. And this, obviously, this is useful for decision makers if you're thinking about particularly health protection um, because there's a lot of concern. Um, you will have seen the deaths, the, the deaths in France and Europe in the 2003 heat wave at about rising temperatures, summer temperatures and heat wave periods. And we know that the frequencies of, of um, uh, high um, days coming together um, it are, like, are likely to um, uh, increase um, over the next um, 80 years. So this has been one of the first attempts, the very first attempts to really translate some, what, some of the science we know um, into decision useful information. Um, and, and actually, um, as a result of this, or in partly in parallel to this, um, some quite big infrastructure decisions are starting to be thought about in probabilistic terms. So there's already been a risk assessment done for the Thames flood barrier protection, given that protection of London is one of the biggest infrastructure issues, that the, if not the biggest infrastructure issue that the UK faces in relation to sea level change over the next hundred or so years. I mean, in fact, the risk assessment, um, they ended up in the Collingridge position. They said, well, we don't fully know what's going to happen. We don't fully know. Before we spend lots of money, um, we know the barrier's probably going to have to change at some stage, but we'll just monitor for the next 30 or 40 years. So they're remaining flexible until they know how things are panning out, and then they will take final decision based upon the models and the proposals they've got to replace um, or enhance the barrier. So people are starting to think about some of these very long-run strategic decisions in risk terms. Um, and just finally, um, really, in, in, and you can go away and read the paper and, and come back to me and have a think about that, 
that the institutional response. Um, m my argument is that none of these bits have been put together anywhere. We had UK SIP there, who've done good work in Oxford, but they probably didn't have psychologists involved and deci decision scientists to try who knew about the risk communication questions. But they've done quite a good job, actually. Um, on the other hand, those of us from more from the behavioural and decision sciences um, have tended not to get involved with scientists and policymakers. And probably both of us have never, both of those groups have never really sat and, and tried to say what would be, what would be a really strong policy um, research programme that would, would be able to support um, climate decision-making um, decision-making when another ash cloud um, event occurs and, and, and that's required. Decision-making around radon risk um, or, or radiation risk if there's a major nuclear emergency. That kind of research and policy organisation doesn't exist. So the argument is we need something new. Um, uh, strategic listening comes out of this point that at every, it's, it's about this reframing of risk communication. As you saw in the Cabinet Office report, the wheel with communication in the middle but as a dialogic process that at, at every point in the risk communication process you are, um, you are actually listening to the people who need the information you're trying to um, develop. Um, so there are a number of things to take into account there. Um, you just, it, it's a question of connecting sciences, um, multiple perspectives and activities with non-scientists, which could be lay people, but generally in this area it's going to be decision makers who are lay people and ordinary people as well, um, who will not have the science and uncertainty back, uh, background that, that um, uh, science has. It's a question about exploring values and knowledge. Um, effect is important, and at uh, this point I came back to, um, I'll come back to, uh, I'll come back to again, need for empirical, empirical evaluation of communication impacts, and we have no strategic capacity to do that either. Um, so what might do this? Um, and this was really, uh, Brooke and I sat down and, and thought, um, he, he had in the back of his mind the RAND Corporation in the US because you've got to have an institution where the scientists and researchers have a long-term career structure so they're working on fundamental questions of risk and uncertainty in, say, climate change. But then they're also there available when um, a, a stakeholder or a key social issue does pop up that needs communication, that needs a fairly rapid or, or, or short-term research um, process. So we, did th we thought about RAND. Um, the, the Climate Impacts Programme, I think, was pointed out to us, was kind of like this, but not quite what we were. It's almost. Um, uh, IASA in, in Austria, the International Institute of Systems Analysis, has got aspects of this, and the Tyndall Centre here as well, had this kind of um, boundary organisation status, crossing from science um, into the policy process, trying to translate that knowledge across. It has to be cross-disciplinary. There's no, uh, I think I hope I've kind of persuaded you of that, that you couldn't do this task of supporting policy decision-making around climate change or other risk issues without cross-disciplinary teams. And in fact, if you look on the, the right, we, we, there are really four types of experts they need. You, you obviously need the subject matter experts, climatologists, etc. Um, you need decision scientists who can understand what the, the risk stuff is about and help to elicit um, some of the risk information from the scientists and then translate it into appropriate formats. 
you need the social and communication scientists who can kind of do the help with the strategic listening, who can go out and find out what your audience requires and what the decision problem partly is, and, and do some of the communication evaluation as well. And then overall program designers who, who can architect, orchestrate the process. So it's quite a complicated... And I'm aware that in, you know, in, in the uh, current economic situation um, with cuts to universities and research budgets, etc., this is not a very um, popular message to be attempting to get across. But I think if you think about it, if you go back, and I'll show right, if you think about the ash cloud, uh, the volcanic ash question, you think about nuclear hazards, you think about climate change, a number of other, um, pandemic flu would be another example. Um, there are some very large risk issues which have very huge health and economic consequences attached to them which we need to deal with and we haven't really grasped that nettle. Um, so short and long-term science policy projects. Stance of non-persuasive communication. Uh, I have a lot of uh, discussions with my climate science colleagues and some of them say, oh this is so terrible, of course we have to go out and act as advocates. And others of them are much more nervous about it, quite rightly, because they say, no, we're scientists, we are not political people. And, and, and it is very difficult, because if you, if you go out and attempt to persuade people from a, from a policy or political perspective, then they will not trust you for your science. But, but if you just go out as a bland scientist, um, just talking about the latest climate science, you kind of lose that, that, that need to communicate what you want to communicate. So Brooke, talks, Brooke Fischoff talks about it as um, non, a stance of non-persuasive communication. You're trying to be a passionate advocate, but in a non-persuasive form. You're trying to um, get information across without being um, ideologically wedded to the, um, the, the kind of the policy question um, that, that it's associated with, i.e. whether we cut emissions or not in this case. Okay, and appropriately resourced, which I'm well aware... Um, uh, in the current financial climate is a bit difficult to um, do. But one can put this as a, a hypothesis, a, a suggestion, something out on the, uh, on the table there that ought to be thought through and the implications of how would we do it. So yes, I'll just, that, uh, that's kind of my final slide, just to really point out again where we started, that there are these many risk questions, they have key strategic um, uh, importance for society in, in policy terms, and we haven't yet really tried to connect what we know about risk and communicating risk and taking decisions under risk with some of the policy and science challenges that are attached to them. And that's all I'd like to say. Thank you for your attention.